the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Order now to fit it into This is the Bob France Authority, broadcasting live from our nation's capital at the Federation for American Immigration Reform, holding their feet to the fire on AM 1420, The Answer. It is indeed the Bob France Authority once again on location here in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We begin at six minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Thursday, the sixth morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2018. Thank you so much for joining us. Why are we in D.C.? If you missed yesterday's show, I will tell you why. We're here because of FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, holding their feet to the fire, 2018. We had a phenomenal day one yesterday. A tremendous event going on here in D.C., really all over this capital area. Uh, the sheriffs, around 50 sheriffs, were in town to talk to the President of the United States last night about border issues, border security, and what we can do to bring true immigration reform to this country, securing our borders, protecting our sovereignty, and most importantly, protecting our citizens and all legal residents here in the United States from the very dangerous uh, uh, problem, the plague, if you will, of illegal immigration. And joining us now is we get started for uh, our second day here in D.C. is Mark Krikorian. He is the uh, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And Mark, so good to have you out here. And I know you're you're playing uh, playing hurt today. Uh, you're a little bit under the weather, but you got a lot of work to do here today. And I appreciate you checking in and reporting for duty. Thanks for having me. And it, I always love doing Cleveland stations. I grew up in Lakewood, actually. Uh, wow, a long long time this, ago. Yeah, there is so many. There are so many. Um, uh, Northeast Ohio ties here that I'm finding out because uh, Dave Ray, who is a comms right. director here, yep. he's an Akron kid, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Bob Dane uh, said he grew up in Detroit, but he spent a lot of his childhood here in Cl- or, uh, up in Cleveland. I so, didn't know that, so yeah. yeah, he's the director here at uh, at Fair as well. So, Mark, uh, l- tell everybody a little bit about what you do at at the Center for Immigration Studies. We're a think tank on this immigration issue. Unlike, say, Fair or Numbers USA, which is another group, they're more citizen groups, citizen action. What we do is research, publication. That that sort of thing, but from that same perspective of tightening up the immigration system. Uh, so, so, do you work in cooperation, right? Not in any kind of a competition. No, no, it's fair not competition. Organizations yeah, like we, this. You we guys... do a different thing. We're in a different business, in a sense. In other words, okay. we're on the same issue, but what we do is the research and publication. We have, you know, we publish papers and have panel discussions and testify before Congress, that kind of stuff. And so, uh, your, is your work geared toward just finding information, gathering the data, or, or since you said you're not like a citizen action group, you don't actually lobby, you don't actually do anything with respect to talking to Congress about immigration issues? Well, we don't lobby. I mean, we provide information to Congress to, and to reporters and others. And to lobbyists, perhaps. And, and to lobbyists, <laughs> exactly. Now, our take on the issue is similar in the sense that what we try to do is make the case for a pro-immigrant policy of lower immigration. 
one that treats immigrants as, you know, people, which of is course. what they are, but has, you know, that going forward we should have less of it. What is your view, Mark Kokorian, at the Center for Immigration Studies, of legal immigration? Because we talked to, you know, certain members of FAIR, um, certain uh, other organizations, Numbers USA comes to mind. They talk about, and even the president has kind of hinted at, it's not just illegal immigration that we need to stop. We need to secure our border. We need to be more aggressive on visa overstays. But legal immigration is something that perhaps we need to temper for a while as well, just simply because of, uh, well, until we can deal with the population of illegals, maybe we need to kind of check legal immigration somewhat. Do you agree? Disagree? Absolutely. No, I agree. Um, Because of all the immigrants in the United States, only about one in four is an illegal alien. Most immigration is legal immigration. And so the way I look at it, the way we approach it, is that legal legal immigrants today aren't really different really from 100 years ago necessarily there are i mean different countries but the same kind of people what's different is us we have a welfare state we have a completely different kind of economy a high-tech economy rather than one that you know needed a lot of factory workers our society has changed we don't need a million immigrants every year which is what we're letting in now Mark uh, Krikorian is my guest. He is executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. One of my many screens just buzzed, and it said, Tell Mark I said hi from David Arredondo. Okay, well, you know hi, David. Yeah, yes, absolutely, I do. <laughs> great, yeah, guy, freaking, yeah. great guy, freaking, frequent guest on my program. Mark, um, let's talk about, the, like you said, you know, three out of four immigrants here are here legally. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they all bring something to the table to help you know, help us. Um, are you a, are you a supporter of the president's idea about merit based immigration? Yeah, generally speaking, yes. I mean, what we need is um, to look good. Look, all immigration creates costs and benefits. There are winners and losers, and the point to an immigration policy should be to benefit in people in the United States and benefit preferably the largest number of people, as opposed to those who pay the costs. And what we have now is a policy that benefits the employers of cheap labor at the expense of regular American workers and taxpayers who end up bearing some of the cost. That's what needs to be rejiggered. We have an immigration policy that helps, that sort of helps the comfortable and afflicts the afflicted, if you will. That's that's an interesting perspective. How do we balance, um, and, and this is something Congress has to figure out, but how do we balance bringing in people who offer something to the country, people who will come here and make the community better rather than, for lack of a better word, and this will not sound very gracious, but sponging off the community, needing entitlements, needing uh, community assistance or government assistance. How do we balance bringing in those people who offer something with the the need to provide asylum to those seeking economic asylum, for example, I mean, the, the different kind, of course, than war and famine and, and natural disaster asylum, but those who are just in impoverished places where they cannot survive. But the fact is, there are five billion people in the world, billion with a B, who are poorer than the average Mexican. So our immigration policy can never be used to alleviate poverty or suffering abroad. That's just, it can't do it. It's not the right But tool. it has throughout, the, throughout you know, well, that's the many way decades. Well, that's the way we've looked at it, mm-hmm. but it hasn't really helped anybody other than a relative handful of people who basically won the lottery. Agreed. The way I look at it is not zero immigration, because I'm for immigration, but zero-based budgeting. You start at zero because a modern society doesn't need any immigration, but then say, which groups of people have such a compelling case to be let in that we let them in. For me, that would be husbands, wives, and little kids of American citizens, legitimate ones. I mean, that's obviously fraud, but as long as it's legit, you have every right to expect if you marry someone or adopt someone, you can bring them in. That's 350,000, 400,000 people a year. That's a lot of people right there. 
than real Einsteins. And I would set the bar pretty high there. I mean, the humanity doesn't produce that many Einsteins every year. Mm-hmm. And then a small number of humanitarian refugees who genuinely cannot stay where they are another second um, and have nowhere else to go. There's not that many people like that. This is going to be a difficult question, perhaps. Um, should religious denomination matter in that? And the reason I ask before you answer is, when we look at that small number that you say of humanitarian you know, refugees, migrants, whatever you want to call them, that we would let in, uh, there are Christians who are being persecuted and being executed for just being Christians out in the Middle East and all of those primarily you know, Muslim-dominated nations. Uh, they don't get preference. They don't get preference to come to here. The you know the the the, the you know the, the most wealthy country in the world, the, the the land of opportunity. It is a Christian nation. We welcome all, of course, but Christians are being killed there, and they're not being given preference. And sometimes they're actually being discriminated against when it comes to their applications to come to the United States. There's a couple points here. First, under our law and under UN treaty on this, being um, persecuted based on your religion is a grounds for asylum. Right. The important, interesting point is that our refugee system is mostly all the first initial steps are run by other countries, are run by the U.N. or by these um, non-governmental groups that the State Department funds, but they're kind of lefty transnational organizations that don't have America's interests at heart. So there are all kinds of decisions that get made before our government people ever see a case that ends up discriminating against uh, Christian refugees. Is that something we can change? I mean, you know, I mean, obviously we have a wonderful ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who seems to be really, really, you know, rattling some cages and upsetting some of the traditional norms and standards that are there. You know, we've let the UN establish U.S. policy in far too many cases, I believe, and I think she believes. Is there a chance that we can change that? Yeah, we can, but it's going to, it would take a pretty, uh, it would take a significant effort because what happens now is the UN picks which immigrants will be resettled in the United States. They select them. The U.N. selects them. Yeah. And then these groups, these lefty groups that we pay through our tax money, do the initial screening and prepare their cases and tell, and tell the people what to say to our government employees. And only then do our Homeland Security people ever see any of these people. So that can be changed, but it's going to require changing the system that we use for resettling refugees. Um, again, I, I just you said it would take a, a pretty large effort to change that. We are the biggest benefactor of the United Nations. We, you know, we, we spend, uh, I don't know, what do we fund? Over a quarter of their operations like just that. ourselves. Right. The, the next highest nation in terms of contribution is about 5% of what we, we put in it. Why don't we just say, look, if we're going to fund this operation, if we're going to... We're going to make decisions about who comes to our country, not you. You don't have that right. I, I mean, I don't disagree. Um, the first step, I think, needs to be reduce, and this is what we've seen with this re- administration, is reducing the number of refugees we take. Because as I, as I pointed out, refugee resettlement should only be for people who have no other option and have to leave immediately. Right. And that's most of the people we take do not fall under that category. That's very well said. And what's really frustrating is the number of refugees who are going into Mexico and then you know getting asylum there and, is, and instead of staying, no, we like the one you know, let's go north one more state one more nation and uh, yeah. and, and come up here. And that's very frustrating. If you need asylum, take it where you can get it. Stop trying to shoot for the you know for the uh, the, the highest level. Uh, Mark Krikorian, uh, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Again, I know you're playing hurt today, uh, but thanks very much for contributing and for coming to hold their feet to the fire. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Mark Kokori joining us. It's 917. Our next guest, as we continue live in Washington, D.C., in the shadow of the Capitol, is going to be Congressman Jim Jordan, who's the founding member, uh, a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus, and our regular guest on AM 1420, The Answer, but now in a different place with a different set of uh, issues to discuss, all immigration-related, as we continue on AM 1420, The Answer. We're holding their feet to the fire. It's the Bob France Authority, live from the Federation for American Immigration Reform. We are indeed live, and we continue now 21 minutes past the hour. Thank you so much for joining us as we are live in the shadow of the Capitol, the nation's government. Uh, what an amazing, amazing week that it has been here at FAIR, the Federation of America, for American Immigration Reform. Fifty Over 50 sheriffs met with the president last night to talk about border security, to talk about what it's going to take to secure the American people and our sovereignty. There are over 40 congressional members. <clears throat> between House members and senators who have been here talking to over 65 radio show hosts from around the country as we continue to sound the alarm about what has to happen here for um, uh, immigration reform to take place. And joining us now is one of our very favorite members of Congress, a regular guest, and now we get to talk to one another in his stomping grounds rather than in ours, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan here on AM 1420, The Answer. Congressman, good morning. 65 radio talk show host but i'm getting to talk to the best one right now. <laughs> let's be with you brother it's good to have you here too so there's so much going on and, and and under normal circumstances i would ask you about the confirmation hearings and i would ask you about the anonymous uh, op-ed and everything else but yeah. let's stay or at least at the beginning here let's stick with the immigration issues sure. because that's why we're here this uh this is the 12th year they've had this event i asked one of the um, fair uh, uh representatives yesterday if he felt like in the last 12 years there has been any movement, is, you know, is this having any impact? And he said he absolutely believes there has. As a matter of fact, that this organization is one of the reasons why we have a Republican Congress, one of the reasons why we have a Rep- Republican president now, because yeah. this issue is so very important to so many people. And, and for people issue. like yeah. you here, the question is, is when are people like you, and I don't say that disrespectfully, but people like you, meaning your colleagues, going to actually get us the traction that we need to getting this immigration yeah. reform done? When are we going to do what we said? Bingo. Right. It was it was front and center, maybe the central issue of the 2016 campaign. The the one promise voters probably remember more than anything else that was made uh, during that campaign during that election was we will build the border security wall, and it's not done yet. So let's let's focus on getting that done. Let's we've talked about this before. Get rid of the visa lottery, in chain migration, reform our asylum laws, stop the crazy sanctuary city policy. All those things need to happen. And as we've talked on your show before, we were close. We had a piece of legislation that got 193 votes in the House. So close to getting there. Unfortunately, we've got to get a few more of our colleagues willing to vote for the right thing. Yeah, and we need, um, we need House leadership to, to whip up those votes. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, yeah, exactly. Part of, that's one of the issues. That's why they call this thing. Somebody asked me yesterday, uh, one of the guests that I had on, why do they call it holding your feet to the fire? And I said, well, it ought to be obvious. We need to hold Paul Ryan's feet to the fire. We need yeah. to hold Kevin McCarthy's feet. Leadership, and that's why, you know, not coincidentally, uh, we have you here. You're running for speaker. Uh, and, and that's what it's going to take. Uh, can you express, or let me, rather than express, can you predict if you are able and be and you're successful if we hold the House, uh, Republicans hold the House, and you're successful as Speaker, will you be able to do what Paul Ryan has failed to do, and that is generate those votes so that we can get this done? That's the goal. I mean, look, and, and the only way you're going to get it done is you're going to have to force this issue. I think you've got to put it on a spending bill. You've got to put the border security wall funding on a, on a piece of legislation and say that has got to happen. And, oh, by the way, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, you're going to have to change the 60-vote rule. 
I mean, I use the example. Can you imagine after two years ago, uh, uh, President, then President Obama nominates Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court, and Mitch McConnell, to his credit, said, "Nope, we're not going to take it up. We're in the midst of a presidential election. We're going to let the American people decide who their next president is going to be, and we're going to let that individual select who the nominee for the Supreme Court vacancy will be." It, that all plays out. The American people say, we want Donald Trump as president. He's president. He nominates uh, Neil Gorsuch. Could you imagine then if, 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 if Mitch McConnell says, you know what, on second thought, it's going to take 60 votes for Neil Gorsuch to be on the court? The American people would have went crazy, and appropriately so. Agreed. So th- that same dynamic has to be in effect for something as important as the border security wall. It was certainly as big an issue, maybe bigger in the presidential race than the Supreme th- as the Supreme Court nominee. Right? I would agree. So maybe one A, one B. Yeah. So that that has to change. It's not in the Constitution. They need sixty votes. Sixty votes largely lets senators avoid as many t- difficult votes as you have to take in the House. And that's, what's really frustrating and concerning to me, Congressman, is it's almost a certainty. It's a lot. That if the Democrats take the uh, the, the Senate, whether gonna, it be, whether it be in in this particular November or or subsequently, they're going to do it. Yes, they're going to they're going to drop it they and are. they're going to advance every single thing they've ever tried. Of course, and, and you know what they want to do? They want to try to raise your taxes. They want and if they get a majority, they will raise your taxes. Now we will have a president who will be against that, but they want to raise your taxes. They want to abolish ICE. They want to continue to socialize medicine, and they want to impeach the president. That's their campaign themes. That's their campaign messages. So that's what they want to do. And yes, they they will. They will get rid of the 60 vote. So we should get rid of because, again, it ain't in the Constitution. So let's get rid of it. Let's do what we say. Now, the border wall is obviously maybe priority number one, mm-hmm. uh, but it's of a number of priorities. Uh, let's talk about some of the others. Uh, according to the statistics that we have compiled here with FAIR, uh, some 40% of the illegal immigrants in this country right now, which is roughly around 12.5 million, uh, are, are visa overstays. So that means we need to find ways to empower ICE. As as the left is screaming to abolish ICE, we need to empower ICE, and we have to be able to find these people within the United States. Now, we're not hunting every single migrant farm worker who's ever crossed that border illegally, and we're not hunting every student who has just stayed a little long, but there are a lot of them that are criminals in addition to being here illegally. What do we do? Yeah, no, look, every sovereign nation has the right and should exercise the right to control their border, know who's coming, who's going, and who's in their country. That is that is just, you know, d- definitionally, that is just part of being a sovereign country. So the fact that the left says, no, we want this border... Remember when, when, remember when Secretary Clinton, then-candidate Clinton, said she wants a borderless hemisphere? Yeah. I mean, that is really... When they're talking about abolishing ICE, fundamentally getting rid of ICE, changing ICE, that is what they're talking about. That is not where the American people are, as evidenced by what happened in the last election. So, yeah, we've got to empower ICE to do their job, give them the resources they need. We need the judges down there on the border so they can adjudicate these cases and figure this stuff out. That all needs to happen. That's in the legislation that we wanted to pass. As I said before, we just a few votes The, the contrast is so stark. I mean, literally just, what, two, three weeks ago, they're rallying around the country and marching and chanting, and I quote, no borders, no wall, no USA at all. They literally want to surrender sovereignty and make this just... That's scary. It is. And the and, and, and these are people that the left supports, that leftist candidates support, that Democrat candidates, they support Antifa and the like, and, and Antifa in turn try to rally up votes for them. Yeah, it's uh, scary. It, it's very dangerous. Um, I've only got a minute left, so I have to hit you on this. Yeah. W- what is your take on what the New York Times did yesterday? They ran that op-ed claiming a senior official. They, this could have been written by Brett Stevens, for all we know. It could yeah. have been written by anybody <laughs> and put their name that's on it. Good, right? I hadn't thought that. That's why you don't do that's why. That's why journalistic <laughs> no. standards say you don't run a, anonymous op-eds. You have to have a name it's on it. The, to your point, it's an opinion piece. Put the darn name on it. Exactly. Right? And become, that, to me, that, that's, it's like, okay, it's sort of, in some ways, laughable because, like, 
It's an opinion piece. It's on the op-ed page. It's they even say it in their lead-in. This is an opinion piece, right? But they won't give us the who wrote. I mean, that, that just makes no sense to me. I mean, I, and I don't know what we can do. <laughs> I, in Brett fact, Steve, there's probably I've heard every name, but that's the first time I heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could very well be. I mean, they're guessing who it is in the administration. I want to know who it is on the editorial board at the Times who's who's making up fake news oh, like this. So it's it's me. really it's really dangerous, <laughs> Congressman. I know you're swamped. No pun intended. We're sitting in the swamp, yeah. but I know you're busy, so I'll let you run. But thank you so it. much for stopping by, right. making time enjoy, for us. We appreciate it. Always. it. Thanks, Bob. Congressman Jim Jordan joining us again. We are live in D.C. at the Fair Federation for American Immigration reform hold their feet to the fire 2018 and we're back right after the news life from the federation for american immigration reform it's the bob france authority on am 1420 the answer in the heart of the swamp are we today and yesterday. We are in the shadow of the Capitol, and obviously so many things going on right now in D.C. It's, it's, it's just a whirlwind around here between the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings and the circus atmosphere created by the Democrats, the op-ed uh, claiming uh, there's a member of the quote-unquote resistance working inside the Trump, Trump administration, the anonymous op-ed, all of these things. It's really kind of insane. But we are here indeed at the Federation of for, uh, for American Immigration Reform, holding their feet to the fire 2018. If you want to learn more about FAIR and how you might get involved and uh, support their tax-deductible work for true immigration reform that serves our national interests, go to FAIRUS.org, FAIRUS.org. They do not take a dime from any business interest or any political party. That's a rarity in Washington. They truly exist to represent the interests of the American public. And they do that through education and events like this. Joining me now, our next guest on this uh, amazing uh, two-day whirlwind that we are in is uh, Stephen Gushoff. He is, or, uh, yeah, Gushoff. I did say it right, right? You said it correct. He is Thank the executive. I just asked him two seconds ago, and then I, I wanted to make, I, I don't know if I said it right. He's the executive director of an organization here in D.C. called ProEnglish.org. And I don't think it's going to take too much of a uh, uh, brain work to figure out what that means. You want to do something I've been banging the drum about for a very long time. And that is to declare English the official language of the United States, yes? Absolutely. That's what pro-English does. Tell us why. Well, number one, English has never been the official language of the United States. And that may shock and surprise your listeners right now, because we talk to people every day, including members of Congress, representatives and U.S. senators, who say to us all, this, all the time, I've had a very conservative, very well-known, I won't say his name, U.S. senator say to me, Steve, wait a minute, why are you advocating for official English? Isn't English already the official language of the U.S.? I said, no, Senator, it has never been the official language of the USA. That's why we are advocating for it right now. What are the benefits of, of, of actually advocating for, or if we were to declare this the official language by, uh, by Congress? Well, there are, there are lots of different benefits, particularly economic and culturally. I'll start with economic. Okay. Back when Bill Clinton was president, he signed an executive order, 13166, a terribly onerous executive order, which mandated that anyone that receives any government funding whatsoever must provide translation and interpretation services on their own dime. So 
So if you uh, if you had some sort of a business and one person walks into your business and right now there are over 300 languages spoken in the USA, if someone comes up to you and says to you, I need you to translate or interpret for me in Swahili, you need to go find someone on your own dime who knows Swahili who can translate and interpret and you pay the whole freight. That's done. Anyone that receives even a nickel of government funding has to, has to do that. That's a, an order that Clinton signed. Now, during the Bush 43 administration, there was a government study that said that those government-mandated translation and interpretation costs cost about $2 billion a year for Americans, $2 billion. Now, that study was done probably, you know, 10 to 15 years ago when Bush 43 was around. Right. There has not been a government study since then, because I think they don't want to know what the true cost is now. But let's face it, if that was 10 to 15 years ago, that number is something north of $2 billion. So what we would like to do is is to have a couple of things done. Number one, we'd love to see passage of the English Language Unity Act in Congress. Right now, we have 71 sponsors in the House and and seven in the Senate. I was just speaking with Congressman Mark Meadows, and uh, he's a friend of ours. He's one of the co-sponsors, and so he's helping us to try to push for it in the House. Um, so we'd like to see passage of the English Language Unity Act in the in the Congress, and what that would do is it would establish English as the official language of the United States for governmental operations only. We're not saying that people can't speak any other language privately. We're not banning any other languages. It's just for governmental operations, English would be the official language. You wouldn't need, then, any of these government-mandated translations and interpretation costs that Clinton ordered. Um, Stephen, first of all, where, how many sponsors does that bill have right now? Where is it? Right now, the bill in Congress, in the House, it has 71 supporters right now, okay. and in the Senate, it has seven. All right, that's, that's a decent start. Where does it need to be before they can get that thing into a committee? Well, it's already in, it is committee? in committees. It's just a matter of getting more getting support it out. for it. Okay, Absolutely. and then they have to have a vote on it to get it out. Yeah, we want to have a vote on it because what we're seeing right now is that, you know, this is a window of opportunity. You have a Republican-led Congress and a Republican in the White House. President Trump, and we have had five White House meetings already with aides to President Trump and Vice President Pence for asking President Trump to repeal President Clinton's order with his own new executive order. Trump, with one signature on one of his famous executive orders, could get rid of Clinton's executive order and get rid of all the government-mandated translations and interpretations, and he could make English the official language as well. So it could be done executively by Trump, or it could be done in Congress. You prefer to have it done by Congress, though, because then if he de- if he declares it uh, by executive order, then the next president can undo it. But this in the same way you're asking him to undo Clinton's. Exactly. Now, we would love for him to do it, because he can do it quicker. Right. Well, I mean, he could do it this afternoon if he wanted to, and but you're right. Another president could undo that. But frankly, we'd love to have him do an executive order right away just to get it done. Can, 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 can we can we have some some rest, uh, some backup there, uh, some redundancy? In other words, can he declare it and then still have Congress sure. working through and making it a, a legislative yeah, matter? Yeah, you work work both sides of the street. That way you un- yeah. That way you know you, if they undo Absolutely. it, you still have the congressional uh, passage of it. Um, back to the part about um, uh, government business being done in English only. Does that extend to schools? Schools are taxpayer you know funded. They are government entities. The government oversees so much about schools. Because I can already hear the backlash being, you don't want non-English speaking students to succeed. You're going to tell uh, you know teachers, uh, you know, no more bilingual. It's all going to be done in English, and it's going to hold people who are non-English speaking uh, back. Yeah, it's actually a, v- a variety of different issues, but I'll answer your questions. Number one, yes, in so much that schools are part of the public and are governmental operations. Exactly why yes, I asked. Yeah, it would apply to them. However, this does not mean 
that students could not learn foreign languages. It doesn't mean that we're pro- prohibiting Spanish or French or Italian classes or whatever in school. You can still learn foreign languages. I'm fluent in Spanish. We could do this interview in Spanish right now if we wanted to. We encourage people to learn other languages, but for governmental purposes, English only. Now, at the same time, another... But what I mean is, I'm looking at it more in the reverse, not so much teaching foreign languages to English-speaking students. I'm talking about, because man- like a lot of school districts mandate that teachers be bilingual yeah. so that they can teach uh, you know kids who speak only Spanish and, and, and teach them in their language rather than helping them to learn English. Correct, and that's my additional point where one of the things that we advocate at Pro English is that we oppose bilingual education. If you're coming to this nation as a child, as a student, we want you not to learn classes, not to have your classes in your native language, but rather to immerse yourself in English. And it really doesn't matter whether you're a child or an adult. We advocate that any legal immigrant to this nation immerse themselves immediately in English, become proficient in English right away. Why? Because if you're a student, you're going to have better academic, you know, better academic success, better academic opportunities in college. And if you're an adult, a worker, an employee, you're going to have better uh, economic opportunities, better job offers. You're going to be able to make more money, support your family, not have to go on government welfare. So when we talk about English language immersion and English language proficiency, it applies to public schools, but also to adults as well. We're talking to Stephen Gushoff, the executive director of um, uh, Pro English. Uh, You can find them online at proenglish.org? Yes, correct. Stephen, um, when we talk about diversity in the United States, um, it's it's been said a billion times, we're a nation of immigrants. We have a lot of people who speak different languages when they come here. And, you know, back at you know, when the quote-unquote uh, old country, where people were coming over from the old country and, and being processed through Ellis Island and so on and so forth, everybody made a point, no matter what your language was, to learn the language. Now people are coming in in different ways, and they don't want to. And as a result, we're seeing enclaves of people of, of the same background, you know, uh, foreign nationals from the same background, living together where they don't have to learn the language. Would declaring English the official language of the United States start to spread that out and break up the enclaves and make people more comfortable living? In, in you know in in more diverse areas in other words people people you know who, who will all have something in common now maybe their culture doesn't have anything in common until they shared the same language wouldn't that help Absolutely. I agree 100%. We don't want to have linguistic ghettos in the United States. We don't want the balkanization of the United States. We don't want to turn this nation into the Tower of Babel. President Trump, when he was running for office in 2015 and 16, said, look, he said, if you want to assimilate in this nation, you have to speak English. Because this is not just an economic issue, it's a cultural assimilation issue as well. Look, Bob, if we were doing this interview right now in Rome, what language would we be speaking? We speak in Italian, Absolutely. not English. Sure. So you come to the U.S., you need to learn English. English is the international language of business, commerce, and finance. You will better yourself if you learn English in this nation. Those who would oppose this, though, what are their what are their arguments? Many, well, you know, many, many you know, it seems to pervade, uh, be pervasive in every argument. Now they'll say it's racist to declare English the official language. It's the same thing that you hear the naysayers, you know, say about really immigration as a whole. They, you know, I do a lot of media, so people call up. You're a hater. You hate immigrants. You're not compassionate whatsoever. I say no, just the opposite. We're more compassionate because if we're telling you and advocating that you come to this nation as an immigrant and that you immerse yourself in English and are proficient in English, you're going to get a better job, you're going to make more money, you're going to be able to support your family better, you're not going to go on government welfare, you're going to be able to live the American dream. We're the compassionate. Should we be willing to put federal tax dollars toward this to to teach ESL, English as a second language, to adults and kids so that they can learn it and become more proficient? It's a possibility. It's a 
way to encourage them. Because we've got to have so. classes or something. You know, if we're telling these people who have been in here for Lord knows how many years, and I don't care if they speak Russian or Italian or Spanish, uh, ESL, English is a second language, they're going to have to get it. They, we're not, you know, we can't make them pay for it. We always want to encourage them learning English, so if that's a better way to do it, then we're all for it. I would say this, as a taxpayer myself, I, you know, there are a lot of things I don't agree with my tax dollars going to. This is something that I would. Take the money going to Planned Parenthood, if you ask me, and give it to ESL classes and, yes, and teach, teach people in the United States to sound like, uh, you know, like Americans. Exactly. Uh, Stephen Gushoff, thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Best of luck in advancing the agenda. And in fact, we'll stay in touch and we'll kind of, uh, you know, especially as that legislation creeps forward and adds more sponsors, we'll talk again. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks very much, Stephen. Stephen Gushoff, Executive Director of Pro English. Follow them online at proenglish.org. I notice in their literature, they have a great piece from one of my favorite guys, Daniel Horowitz, a regular guest on this program, who wrote a, a wonderful uh, editorial called The Most Important Time to Make English the Official Language. Daniel's right, Stephen's right, we're right, and we're right back as well. Live from the Federation for American Immigration Reform, it's the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed, we do continue now in the heart of the swamp uh, in Washington, D.C. We're in the shadow of the Capitol. We are finding out even more every day how swampy it truly is. Swampiness inside the Trump administration? Well, maybe. It depends on whether or not you can trust the New York Times. And I don't know if we can ever trust the New York Times. You saw it. You heard it. Yesterday, uh, an op-ed ran in the New York Times, supposedly, purportedly, written by a member of the Trump administration who called him or herself a part of the resistance. Absolutely shameful. They ran this anonymously, which means it could have been written by a Trump senior official or could have been written by a member of the New York Times editorial board as fake news. It could have been written by anybody. And uh, the New York Times violated every journalistic standard known to man in running that thing. So uh, this is the swamp, and that's where we are. Now, we're trying to make it a little less swampy. We're working very hard, talking to dozens and dozens of members of Congress here who are meeting with uh, leaders from FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and talk show hosts like myself, and 65 other shows from around the country who descended on D.C. to indeed hold their feet to the fire, to demand action. Uh, In the last two days, we have talked to members of Congress, and we will continue to. We have talked to Border Patrol agents and leaders. We have talked to ICE leaders. In fact, former director of, uh, acting director of ICE, Tom Holman, will be joining me at 1035 this morning. We have talked to ranchers, property owners down along our southern border who are seeing these immigrants, these uh, aliens flooding across, uh, you know, their, uh, their property, running drugs, smuggling people. They're afraid to come out of their houses. We talked to angel family moms uh, who have lost their loved ones due to uh, 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 killings by illegal aliens. It is just such, an, a very, uh, such a very important issue. And our next guest is uh, going to be Kevin Jackson. He is uh, finishing up an interview, it looks like, next door here on Radio Row. And we're going to be talking him, uh, with him in just a moment. Kevin, of course, is the best. Uh, and look, I say his name and he shall appear. Look at that. <laughs> Kevin Jackson. Go ahead and throw those cans on right there, Kevin. 
just introducing you. Uh, appreciate you sliding right over uh, to the Ohio with the Ohio row here. Right. I guess. Yeah, so we're just I on in Youngstown, and now we got you here in Cleveland. Uh, Kevin Jackson joins us. Kevin, of course, is a best-selling author, a Fox News contributor, and a radio show host himself. And uh, it's so good to have you here, Kevin. How are you enjoying Fair this year? Love it, love it. And I have a movie to promote that's premiering in Cleveland, Ohio, tomorrow. Tell me right now. BleedingBlueMovie.com. It's going to be in Euclid, Ohio. And uh, it's a movie about policing. And so uh, it's, it's just an amazing film. So anybody that's listening, go check it out. If you're law enforcement, we've got some free tickets for you to go. But uh, we're, we're supposed to be talking about immigration, but you've got me now because of the Kaepernick story and Nike yeah, and everything else. So give me more. What's, what's, the, what's the theme of the, uh, of the movie? The you theme you of say the movie? it's about policing, but what do you mean? Well, so the arc of the movie is there's a guy. His name is Clifford, and we, his mother, he died. And they called him the gentle giant, big black guy, and it sets up like Michael Brown. So he's threaded throughout the movie because we tell his story. Okay. And, and his story has an, an intriguing um, ending. I'll put it that way. And, and, it, and it's a reason why you don't know his name because he's the, the, the other Michael Brown you didn't hear about. But then we talk about how Barack Obama, when he said the cops acted stupidly in Cambridge, mm-hmm. that was the catalyst that led to everything that's happened in policing today and, and built this lie. The narrative that cops are out killing blacks. And so we talk about Kaepernick. Now, going back to that, and we'll segue back to immigration. When you look at what's going on with Kaepernick and Nike, rewarding the bad guy, the guy that's cost the NFL billions of dollars, cost his team owners millions of dollars, has essentially ruined football for many Americans, one of our premier sports. And I haven't watched football in three years. And, and most of it is because of Colin Kaepernick or his type and what he's doing, separating, you know, dividing the country along these racial lines over a lie that's built around supposed police targeting blacks right. around the country. So and so we, we set it up with, you know, why do cops become cops? Why do they leave the military to become police officers? We had a guy that left from being Sammy Davis Jr.'s drummer at the age of 18 to become a cop. We talk about bad cops. Uh, we had a guy called the mafia cop and he, uh, you know, he tells you I was a bad cop, man. So we, we don't pull any punches and the stories are riveting. The, the, the raw footage of these cops running into places where other people are just screaming to get out of right. and so on and so forth. And the stories they tell people tell about if how a cop saved my life. And, and, you know, I wouldn't be here to talk to you about this stuff. So it's really just a correction of the lies and using immigration as an example. This immigration discussion is nothing but a lie. We have a legal immigration system where people line up, they get their visas, they learn our language, they learn our culture, they learn our constitution, they have a job, they have something to bring to society. Who wouldn't want that over somebody that can just come across the border, possibly bring, no medical screening, bring a disease, bring in bad fruit, bring in, uh, you know, human trafficking, uh, sex trafficking, drugs, uh, and, and all kinds of mayhem. Which which one of those things would you sign up on if you just took the name off of it? But liberals want to convince us that that's the better system. And, and they completely overlook the people that do it the right way. And that's what Nike did. Nike could have given that award to J.J. Watts, who gave $5 million, raised $5 million for hurricane victims in Houston. But they gave it to a scumbag. I think he donated five because he raised $38 million. Which is, you know, he, he set a goal. He just said, hey, Houston, let's do this. And, and he set up a GoFundMe. His goal was a million dollars. He hit it like in 10 minutes. He said, okay, let's shoot for $5 million. That went on for a few days. 
ways to the point where they finally ended it at $38 million. And you're right. Uh, why is he not on the Nike campaign? And that's that Kaepernick ad, I don't know if you saw the first one, they're airing it tonight as yes. the season starts on, 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 on uh, Thursday Night Football. Yeah. It, it is a direct slap in the face, as you say, to law enforcement throughout this country. And, and let me tell you that you're going to watch Thursday Night Football. I think the stats are going to be horrible tonight. Uh, I think the season's going to be bad. And it's it's like le- leftism, even though it knows it's defeating itself, it's so b- hell-bent on the narrative that it says, I don't care if, if I lose my life, I don't care if I lose the argument, as long as I win the ideological debate, I'm good. And and, and it's time for us to stand up against it. Let me uh, let me talk to you about race, a couple of issues. Number one, staying on the Kaepernick thing, and you know, and his, it's everybody knows about the pig socks that he yeah. wore. What, what people don't may, may not know as much as on his Instagram page, shortly after that, he tweeted a, or posted a picture of a of a police badge next to a slave catcher badge mm-hmm. from from way back uh, in in the uh, you know 19th century. Um, as a black man, how do you respond to your fellow black uh, you know uh, 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 citizens who who call you? You know the same thing. I oh, talk to Larry, I talk to Larry Elder about this all the time. You, you're you're oh, the race traitor. You're yeah. the race traitor because you back the blue instead of well. I, I call them black cowards. America. I call them cowards because it, look, it, what I do to get death threats and people who want to kick my butt, which they can't do, by the way. I mean, I tell them all the time, come try. You know, I, I, I don't have four black belts because I'm a punk. <laughs> so you know, come do it. But I I, I tell them, bring it. You know, and you're the coward because, see, for me to stand up and recognize what's really going on in the black community, the lies about BLM, we are not oppressed in this country as black folks. I don't want to be anywhere else. It isn't Stockholm Syndrome. It isn't slave mentality. It isn't wanting to please the white man. I love America. I don't want to be anywhere else. I I lived in China. I lived in France. I traveled to 22 countries in Africa, more than most of these so-called African-American clowns. And I can tell you, there's nowhere in Africa I went that I would stay to live. So I tell them, you're the coward because you watch what's going on in the black community. You've watched the degradation of the black community. You've watched the black on black crime. You lament a a police officer that shoots a thug in, in Ferguson. And while that discussion was happening, there were dozens of blacks that were killed in the in the weekends that, that followed, and they didn't say a single word. That's right. You're the coward. I'm the one calling attention to this and trying to really make a difference. Now back to the immigration issue again. The racial component here. As a black man, are you familiar with Peter Kersenow, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights? No. He's a frequent guest on Fox as well. He's a guest on my program. He has done incredible work. He's crunching the numbers about how disproportionately the black worker is affected by illegal immigration. Sure. Because for the obvious reasons, you know, black America is is historically uh, lower in terms of graduation rates, lower in terms of academic achievements, so they need what? They need blue-collar jobs. They need the, you know, the quote-unquote low-skilled or unskilled labor jobs, and that's exactly what illegal immigrants are coming here who don't speak the language do. They take these jobs from black people. Uh, that, that's an issue for you. It should be anyway. It, it is, but it isn't just, you know, people, it's, you know, it's not bean-picking jobs or whatever. These jobs are construction, construction jobs. Construction, landscaping. The, landscaping. I mean, oh. It's welders and things like that. These paying are, jobs. These, let me tell you, I take those jobs. Heck yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the idea that is our time out. Yeah, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there at the top <laughs> yeah, of the hour. So, yeah, so exactly. Uh, but, yeah, it's in the front. It really is. And, it's in, and it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be allowed to happen. Is this your first visit to FAIR? No, no. Been here many times. Well, this is my first visit. I'm so glad you are here. You do a tremendous job. Seriously, I enjoy your work on Fox as well. And I hope we can catch up on the radio again from time to time Let's to continue to talk to you, tell these stories. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin Jackson. I didn't know you were a four, four different black belt uh, holder, by the way. <laughs> I do see that you don't miss arm and chest day very often. Uh, so good for you. 
you. <laughs> we'll catch up again soon. That's right. Kevin Jackson uh, joining us on AM 1420 The Answer, live from the swamp in the shadow of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Hour number two coming up, AM 1420 The Answer. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.